You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are thankful for your grace, and we come now to your word, and we ask that you would attend it with your blessing, with your spirit, with your power, that we would be responsive and receptive to what we can learn from it this morning. We ask your blessing on this time with the expectation that you will be glorified and honored through your word and you speaking to us through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been discouraged when you try and share Christ with somebody and you get results that are less than encouraging? If you've been a Christian for any period of time, then you know that it is your task, it is your job, it is your mandate to share the truth of the gospel with people who are perishing. And it is also, I would suspect, the great desire of your heart that others who don't know Christ would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. None of us wants to see our relatives, our friends, our co-workers, and our neighbors perish for all of eternity in a Christless eternity under the wrath of God for their sin. And so there is something in our hearts that desires to share the truth with people. And then we do that. And if you've done it any number of times, then you've probably been met with mixed results. Perhaps you have shared Christ and you have that individual who some of them will will come to faith in Christ. They will believe the message. They will hear the truth. They will begin to come to church. They will hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and embrace Christ and trust Him for salvation. And then you have another group, probably equally as small, that sort of glom on to the gospel message for a period of time and then they grow cold to it or they're interested for a period of time and then they grow cold to it and they fall away and then want nothing to do with Christianity or the faith. Others will hear the message of the gospel and they will jeer you or sort of sneer at you or mock you or not like you or even be hostile to you because you believe the gospel. And But perhaps most people... Most people that you run into simply have no desire to understand or know truth. They like the broad road that leads to destruction. Sin is fun. And if it weren't so fun, people would be getting out of it as fast as they could and and jumping on righteousness. But sin is enjoyable and sin is fun. And so people like the broad road that leads to destruction and they want nothing to do with righteousness and nothing to do with truth. And Christ for them is something that might work for you, but it's not going to work for them, and, and they're not interested in spiritual things at all. And so that kind of a response can tend to discourage us because we, we like to see results. We like to see the preaching of the gospel or, or present the gospel and have people readily rush toward it. But Scripture says that that's not how the unbeliever responds to the message of the cross. That is not how those who are perishing respond to the preaching of the Word or sharing of truth. They don't run toward it. They run away from it. God has to do something to direct us back so that we come back toward that gospel and are actually attracted to it. You know, we tend to forget that the Apostle Paul was not always met with great results. You realize that? We tend to remember the times when Paul preached the Word and multitudes came to faith in Christ. We remember Peter preaching the Word and 3,000 people getting saved saying, what must we do to be saved? Pricked in their hearts by the message. And this massive amount of people who respond. We remember like Paul in Thessalonica when he preached the gospel, it says that many of them believed, including a large number of Greek men and women. A number of them believed and joined Paul and Silas. 
And then he left and he went to Berea and it says they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. And many of them believed along with a prominent number of Greeks. And then Paul went to Corinth where Crispus, it says, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household and many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. Isn't that incredible? Many, many, many. We see large numbers coming to the Apostle Paul and believing the Gospel. But there were times, you know, when he preached and he presented the Gospel and the response was not all that encouraging. Remember the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17? Began to speak of the resurrection. And it says when they heard him talk about the resurrection, they started to sneer. Some of them, some, just a small number, said we'll hear you again on this number, on this matter. And then Luke says a small number actually believed. And he lists two or three of them that believed in Athens. But most of them began to sneer when they heard of the resurrection. And then Paul went to Jerusalem. He preached the gospel from the steps of the temple. Did anybody believe? No. Then he went to Caesarea and he presented the gospel to Felix on more than one occasion. Did Felix ever believe? No. And then he, and then he shared the gospel with Festus in Caesarea. Did the governor Festus, did he ever believe? No. And then Paul shared the gospel with Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And did Agrippa believe? Well, let's see what Agrippa's response is in Acts chapter 26. We're going to be looking at Paul's Agrippa's response to the gospel. We have looked at Paul's presentation of the gospel to Agrippa, his defense, his explanation to him. Festus is there with all of the prominent people from the city. And now we're going to look at what is the response that Paul got when he got done sharing this message, which is the most theological, the most gracious, the most intelligent, and the most biographical, and one of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith on record after giving this magnificent message, as persuasive as Paul was, we would expect that not only Festus, but also Agrippa, and half of the people around him would have jumped on board to this kind of a presentation. But is that what happened? What, what did they do? How was Paul met? What was his response like? It's in Acts chapter 26. Now before we get into it, I have a little piece of trivia that I want to share with you. Before you turn to Acts chapter 26, some of you are already there. That's alright, because I'm going to ask you to turn back somewhere else. I don't know where else I can put this little piece of trivia in, so I'm not going to pretend like I do know, but I, I came across something this last week, and you know how when I, I discover something, something in history or some connection in the book of Acts, I kind of like to connect those dots for you and sort of add some color, add some, some livelihood to the book of Acts. I was reading something this last week, and a thought, a, a little tiny detail came back to my mind that I had forgot all about. I'm assuming that you've forgotten all about it as well. And that little detail kind of got me studying and researching and thinking and sort of connecting some dots, and I, I found something really fascinating. Turn back to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. Acts chapter 13. This is before any of Paul's missionary journeys. This is the beginning of Luke's sort of narrative regarding Paul. Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Now Luke's going to list five of them. Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. The Saul and Barnabas are serving in the church as elders, as pastor teachers, as prof, along with a group of the leaders, and Luke lists the leaders in the church. You've got Simeon, you've got Lucius, Barnabas, and Saul, and who else? Menaean, who Luke says had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Kind of an interesting little detail. I forgot all about it until this week. I was reading something. Reminded me of that interesting little detail. Who is Herod the Tetrarch? The word brought up with means literally a foster brother or one raised in the house with. 
Herod the Tetrarch. Who's Herod the Tetrarch? Herod the Tetrarch was also known as Herod Antipas. Herod the Tetrarch was one of the sons, one of many sons, of Herod the Great. You remember who Herod the Great was? Herod the Great was the Herod who tried to kill the baby Jesus when the wise men came to worship him. Herod the Great was the one who had built the city of Caesarea. He was the king who slaughtered all of the two-year-old and younger boys in and around Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. Well, he had many wives. He had many sons. One of them was Herod the Tetrarch. Menaean, who had been serving in the church with Paul and Barnabas, had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was a foster brother of that Herod who then got converted. Now, you think, Herod, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, that Herod the Tetrarch was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, and he was the Herod who ruled when Jesus was killed. He's the Herod who had Jesus executed. Well, Menaean was his foster brother. Menaean served alongside Paul and Barnabas in the church at Antioch. Now, you say, Herod, isn't Agrippa a Herod? He is, isn't he? He's, in fact, the last of the Herodian dynasty. So is there a relationship? Is there a connection? There certainly is, and and this is it. In Acts chapter 26, we have Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II. Who was his father? Well, one less than the two is one, right? Herod Agrippa I. Do you remember who Herod Agrippa I was? Acts chapter 12, he's the one who killed the apostle James with the sword. He was the one who arrested the apostle Peter and tried to put Peter to death to please the Jews. He was the one who was eaten by worms and died. Do you remember the worm food king? That was Herod Agrippa I. That was Herod Agrippa II's father. Well, Herod Agrippa I, his father was a man named Aristobulus. Aristobulus was a half-brother to Herod the Tetrarch. So Agrippa, in Acts chapter 26, he had a great-uncle who had a foster brother who served alongside of the apostle that is now standing before him in Acts chapter 26. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating? You say, what's that going to, what difference is that going to make to me during this week? Absolutely none. But it's one of those interesting little dots that I like to connect because I'm kind of a freak that way. I have this little fetish for details like that. Back to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And you know, I got to wonder, back in Acts chapter 25, Agrippa II, when Festus said, hey, I've got this guy whose case is on the docket. His name is Paul. And here's what's happened. Sort of gave him the rundown. What did Agrippa say? I have been wanting to hear this man for myself. And i got to wonder, had he heard about Paul through some other source? Probably through Felix and, and uh, Drusilla. Drusilla was Agrippa's sister. Paul explained the gospel to her. But I wonder if he had heard about Paul through his great-uncle's foster brother or his great-uncle or one of the other Herods who was connected to Herod the Tetrarch. Paul served alongside of his foster brother in the church in Antioch. Fascinating little detail. Okay, Acts chapter 26, we're going to pick it up at verse 23. Paul's defense, his official defense, ends at verse 23. Verse 24 says, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind! Much learning has driven you mad! But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So Paul is in the middle of his defense in verse 24. 
It says, while Paul was saying these things, and I think that Paul would have went on had Festus not interrupted him. But Festus interrupts him, and Luke says, he shouts out in a loud voice. Why a loud voice? Uh, Festus could have said this quietly or privately to Agrippa, who was seated next to him, or at least close to him. Festus could have said this under his voice to Paul, who was before them, at least quietly enough. Paul, you're crazy. Stop looking like an idiot in front of all these people. You know why he raised his voice? He raised his voice because he is in an auditorium with all of the prominent men of the city. And Festus has listened to Paul go on and on and on about all of these details, about his past, his conversion, his theology, what led to his arrest. And Paul gets to at the end of all of it and starts talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of their Messiah. And Festus finally has had enough. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You've lost your senses. You're nuttier than squirrel droppings. Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. You are beside yourself with insanity. And loud enough so that everybody gathered around could hear what he said. Because what Festus is trying to do is disrespect Paul and mock Paul in front of all of these dignitaries. A room that is filled with all of these dignitaries. Could have said it quietly, but he doesn't. Paul, you're insane. Now what would lead to a response like that? What would lead to a response like that? Let me give you some suggestions. I can offer three of them. First of all, there has to be, I think, an element of frustration in Festus' response. An element of frustration. Now, you've you got to understand where Festus is coming from in all of this. Festus showed up on the scene because Nero called him in to replace Felix, who had been incompetent. And when Festus arrived in Caesarea, he found that on the court docket was this one case that had lingered for two years while Felix did nothing about it. Felix was trying to get a bribe out of Paul. So Festus shows up, the docket should have been cleaned, Felix should have dealt with all of that before Festus showed up, but he didn't. And now Festus has to deal with this Paul issue. So he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish leaders, and the Jews say, we got one guy that we want, we want his head, we want his case taken care of. So Festus says, okay, you come down to Caesarea, we'll get together, we'll hold the trial, we'll pull him out, we'll, you can raise your accusations, and if he's Guilty, then we'll condemn him and I'll turn him over to you guys or execute him or do whatever the law dictates needs to be done. So the Jews come down with Festus and they've been hobnobbing all the way down from Jerusalem to Caesarea and they get to Caesarea and they bring up their accusations against Paul and Paul appeals to Caesar. Well, now it's out of Festus's hands. Festus has to send him off to Caesar. You would think that Festus would say, oh, yeah, we got that taken care of. Good, case closed. But that's not what happened. Now Festus has to write a letter to Nero before he sends Paul back to Rome with the case. And the letter is supposed to detail all of the accusations against Paul and the case history. Festus doesn't know what to write. Paul's an innocent man. There's no witnesses, no legitimate accusations. He's done nothing worthy of death. He's been acquitted, I don't know how many times, by Lysias and then by Felix and then by Festus. But he has to go to Rome because that's what the law says. What do I write? Well, then Agrippa shows up. Perfect opportunity. I'll ask Agrippa what to do. So he lays out the case before Agrippa, thinking, now I can get an idea of what to do with Paul, what to write in the letter. So the next day, Agrippa says, I'd like to hear the man myself. The next day they show up, they have this big thing, Paul gives his defense, and he gets to the end of it, and Festus is thinking in his mind, I'm no closer to an answer now than I was yesterday when I asked for the king's help. He's frustrated because this whole case has frustrated him. And we've lost that as we kind of slowed down and went through that defense. We kind of lost that history and we lost sort of the emotion behind Festus's response. But I think that there is an element of frustration in this. Festus is frustrated. He needs an answer. What am I going to write to Nero? And he doesn't have an answer, still doesn't have an answer. Second, there's an element of ignorance here. Festus, Festus is ignorant. 
Festus doesn't know the Jews. Festus doesn't know Jewish culture like Agrippa does. He doesn't know Jewish customs. He doesn't know the Jewish law. He's not familiar with Moses and the prophets like Agrippa was. Agrippa was an expert in all things Jewish. And Festus is not acquainted with the nuances of Jewish theology. And so Paul waxes eloquent about all of these phrases using phrases from the prophets and building his case from Moses and the prophets that these are the things that would happen to the Messiah and to Festus, who's sitting there as a Greek. He has listened to all of this, and it all sounds like a bunch of vain babbling by some lunatic that's come unhinged. This is an element of ignorance. But third, friends, and this is really it, when Paul mentioned the resurrection, that was as much as he could take. When Paul said that he had to die, the Christ had to die and rise again, just as Moses and the prophets said it was going to happen, that was enough for Festus. Because you see, no rational, clear-thinking, self-respecting Greek would ever believe that dead people come back to life. It just wasn't part of their worldview. It wasn't part of their thought processes. Do you remember when Paul mentioned the resurrection on the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17? It says they sneered. Why? Because Greeks didn't think that way. They didn't believe those things. That is fairy tale myth. No self-respecting Greek, any kind of an educated or noble or elite individual would never believe such nonsense. So when Paul gets to the resurrection, Festus says, Paul, that's it. You have lost your mind. You're beside yourself with insanity. Your learning has driven you mad. Friends, you ever, ever have anybody call you crazy for being a Christian? You ever have anybody call you crazy for being a Christian? Somebody said, well, no, I've never really had anybody call me crazy. Well, take solace in this. If they don't call you crazy, they still think you're crazy. Because listen, if they didn't think you were crazy, they would join you. They think you're nuts. I mean, you've got to be foolish. You've got to be insane or crazy to believe that God has spoken in one book. And you have to be crazy and insane to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And you've got to be crazy to believe that dead people come back to life and that eventually all people will come back to life in a new body, either unto destruction or unto eternal glory. But you've got to be insane to believe those things. And are you really insane enough to believe that your eternal destiny rests with this one individual who was crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a tomb? Some little Galilean peasant that nobody noticed and nobody wanted anything to do with. You're really going to entrust your destiny to Him? You've got to be insane. Well, friends, you're probably like me and you say, well, that's the definition of insanity. It's certifiable. It's certifiable because that's what I'm resting my eternal destiny on. That's what I'm trusting all that I have to, all that I am to, those facts. And even though they may not call you crazy, they still think you're crazy. And really you are. I praise God I'm nuts. Nuts for Jesus. I think all of us, should, we should have t-shirts. Crazy about Jesus. Crazy over Jesus. Crazy Jesus freaks. That's what we are. They called Paul crazy. You know they called the Lord Jesus crazy? Mark chapter 3. Came back to his own hometown and the crowds gathered and the crowds were so big coming to see him and Jesus was in the middle of it that Mark says in Mark chapter 3 verse 21 that his own people, that is his own family, went out to seize control of him saying he has lost his senses. He's just a carpenter. And all these people are coming to him thinking he has anything to teach them. They said he's lost his mind. John chapter 8, John chapter 10, they said he has a demon. You know what the implication is? He's not in his right mind. He's lost his mind. He's lost his senses. He's not in control of himself. If anybody ever calls you crazy, just know they did that to Paul and they did that to Jesus, and so you're in good company. There must be something right with you if the world thinks you're crazy. 
Somebody calls us nuts, crazy, should it surprise us? We should actually expect it, shouldn't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing. Festus heard the message that Paul preached, and he said, that's crazy. That's insane. You can't honestly believe that, Paul. There's nothing in the gospel that's attractive. Do you understand that? Nothing in the gospel is attractive. You say, it was attractive to me. It's not because of something that is in the message, and it's not because of something that is in you. That is because of something that God did in you to make the message attractive to you. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's because God is determined to save you. That there was something in the message that you had to have. But it's foolishness to those who perish. It's unattractive. It's an affront to the natural man. It's insane. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of our efforts. It's a waste of our energy. Or so the natural man says. So the world says. It says foolishness to those who are perishing. And notice what Festus accredits the foolishness to. Much learning has driven you mad, Paul. Much learning. See, he couldn't say of, Festus could not say of Paul, you know what? It's because you're an uneducated idiot that you don't understand the finer points of reasoning and logic and theology and, and how the world works. It's because you're so uneducated that you actually would believe a myth like this. Festus can't say that. Paul's an articulate man. He is a scholar. He is a well-educated man. He is a well-versed man. He's a well-spoken man. Paul can quote, Pagan prophets in Acts chapter 17, off the top of his head, he is culturally astute, he is theologically astute, he is a scholar of top notch, a Jewish rabbi. He knows what he's talking about. And Festus said, Paul, your, your knowledge has like gone into your head and spoiled there. It's turned bad, it's turned sour on you. And it is your much learning that has driven you mad. Like a man who is so into his books and so into studying that he loses all touch with reality. When I was a, when I was an associate pastor up in Canada, we had this one guy who was in the church. And, uh, I'll call him Tommy, because that was his name. And he, uh, <clears throat> and he was, I don't think he ever did embrace the gospel. I don't think he ever did trust Christ. But he came to the church, nearly every function that the church had, and you always knew that when you walked into the doors, that Tommy was gonna sort of <clears throat> corral you into a corner or up against a wall or something, and you had a half an hour. The half an hour. And the pastor there and I understood that if we ever came out of our office into the foyer, into the office area there, and Tommy was there talking to one of us, that if he knew that we would rescue each other, that was the, that was the understanding. You go out and you gotta rescue whoever it is that Tommy is talking to. Tommy was somebody who sat in his house, he was a hermit, he kind of secluded and kept away, and he read all of these books, and he was into physics and string theory and and uh, hyper-atomic, tenth-dimensional, blah, 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 blah. And it was real scientific, much learned, and everybody thought Tommy was a little nuts. And I think Tommy was a little a little touched in that regard, but his much learning didn't help out the topic, help out this situation at all. And through his much learning, he started talking to you about other dimensions and atoms and atomic and splitting atoms and joining atoms and atoms and eaves and all of this stuff, and just <laughs> off into all of these tangents. And you knew it was going to be, and he'd ask you questions about this stuff, and I didn't know. Any of that stuff. I'm not into string theory and ten dimensions and all this stuff. But he was. And in his mind, he was just messed up. That's what Festus... You're a Tommy, Paul. Your much learning has driven you mad. You've learned so much that you can no longer discern between reality and fantasy. You have learned so much that now you will believe something as foolish as this. And once you get to the point of learning so much 
so intellectual that you lose touch with reality, Paul. Your much, your much learning has driven you mad. I love what Paul says. I love his response. It's so gracious. Paul said, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Most excellent Festus, term of respect. It's a term of admiration. It's a, it's a term that was appropriate to speak to the governor with graciousness, with, with uh, sort of compassion and in control of all of his senses. Paul demonstrates that he's not out of his mind. I'm not out of my mind, Festus, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Now, of the two, Festus and Paul, which one is acting like a madman? It's Festus, isn't it? Standing up, you're out of your mind, Paul. Much learning has driven you mad at the top of his voice, holding him up for ridicule in front of all these people. And with a calm and cool demeanor and manner, he simply responds with grace, not re- exchanging a revile with a, revi- a reviling accusation with another one, not rebutting him with slander. He doesn't call Festus names, but he approaches him with graciousness and humility and respect and says, most excellent Festus, I'm not out of my mind, but I utter words of sober truth. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you respond when somebody calls you a name? It's not how you want to respond, is it? You want to attack back. Friends, you don't attack back. When you're persecuted for righteousness and someone calls you crazy, nuts, when somebody calls you a name and says you're this or you're that, you respond like Paul does. Most excellent, sir. I'm not. And then leave it at that. That's how Jesus responded. That's how Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says we ought to respond. That's how Paul demonstrates throughout the book of Acts. That's how you respond. Festus, I haven't lost my mind, but what I utter to you are words of sober truth. And then he does something very interesting in verse 26. He calls the king in as a witness. Look at this. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escapes his notice, for it has not been done in a corner. He calls on Agrippa as a witness. The king can testify. The king can testify that everything that I have declared to you is a matter of public record. Whether it is the prophecies that have been given in the prophets or in Moses, the king knows about them. They weren't given in a corner. It's not secret. It's not esoteric. It's nothing hidden. At this point, the Christians has been preaching the Gospel publicly for 30 years. And Agrippa knew. His father had put to death one of the apostles and tried to put to death Peter. His great uncle had put to death the Lord Jesus. And his great-uncle had beheaded John the Baptist. And his great-great-grandfather killed all of the babies trying to kill the Lord Jesus. Agrippa knew well the whole history, the whole Christian theology, all of the Christian thinking. He knew the Christian Scriptures. He knew the, the Scriptures that the Christians used from the Old Testament to prove their case. He knew the prophecies. The death of the Lord Jesus was a matter of public record. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was one of the most attested facts in history. To that time, over 500 eyewitnesses could bear testimony to the fact that they saw Jesus of Nazareth alive after three days. The resurrection of Christ was attested. The ascension of Christ, even Paul's conversion, had witnesses. Paul says, everything that I've given to you is a matter of public record. And the king knows all of these things. It was actually a shame to Festus that he didn't know any of them. He calls the king as a witness. The king can testify. Everything I have said is a matter of public record. It's all out in the open. None of it has been done in a corner. None of it is secret. And then Paul does something that I think is really interesting. Verse 27, King Agrippa turns back to the king. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Notice how Paul zeroes in back on King Agrippa from Festus and everybody else in the room. Paul's right back on King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? Now listen, friends, there is no advantageous way for Agrippa to answer that question. There's no advantageous way for him to answer that question. Paul has been arguing this. From the facts of history, you look at the facts of history about the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, the fact that all of this is public testimony. And then you look at the prophets. And anybody can conclude from looking at the prophets and from looking at the facts of history that this Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ had to suffer and that the Christ had to rise again. So if you believe the prophets, you're led to one conclusion. And what is it? Well, Jesus is the Christ. That's the conclusion. That's where you've got to arrive at. And it's almost as if Paul cannot conceive of somebody with Agrippa's intellect and Agrippa's expertise not seeing the truth when it was laid out in front of him so clearly. So what is Agrippa going to say? Well, listen. If Agrippa says yes, then he travels one big step down Paul's road toward Paul's conclusion that Paul wants to bring him to. If Agrippa says yes, then he is conceding to Paul. Yes, I do hold the prophets as authoritative. Yes, I do believe what they say. And yes, I do know all of the facts that you've just described to me. Do you know what Paul's next question is going to be? Agrippa, why then will you not believe on him and turn from your sin and repent and have eternal life? That's the next question. Agrippa doesn't want to go to the next question. He doesn't want to concede to Paul all of that ground. He can't say yes. But he can't say no. And you know why he can't say no? He was the king over the Judea. He was king of the Jews at the time. He was the one who all the Jewish subjects loved because he was a Jew or a practicing Jew, not born a Jew, practicing Jew, proselyte. He knew the Scriptures and he participated in all the Jewish religion. They loved Agrippa for that. They thought this was great. They had one of their own sitting on the throne and he really didn't oppress them like the previous Herods had done. And so they had his, he had their admiration. And if he says, no, I don't believe the prophets, what's that going to do to public relations? Right? That's going to, everything's going to go downhill. Everybody's going to hate Agrippa then. You can't disavow the respected and the revered prophets of your people. So he can't say yes because that's to concede that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He can't say no because that's to disavow the prophets that all of his people and he respect and look up to. So what does he say? He can't say yes and he can't say no. What does he say? Verse 28. Agrippa replied to Paul. Uh, hold on. The end of verse 27 says, Paul says, I know that you do. I know that you do. And I think, from the flow of the text, I think there was a long pause between the question, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I think there was a long pause. Things get uncomfortable during long pauses. As everybody gathered begins to think through the implications of this. Then Paul says to Agrippa, I know that you do. You don't have to answer, Agrippa. I'm not going to ask you to answer and move that one step closer to the conclusion. I'm going to answer for you. I know you respect the prophets. I know you revere the prophets. I know you believe the prophets. It's almost as if Paul is sort of prepping him for the next question. Agrippa, since you believe the prophets, and since you know all that's come to pass, why then will you not believe on the one that the prophets promised? That's the next question. But Paul never gets to answer the next question because in verse 28, the king says, or verse 20, yeah, verse 28, Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now this gets kind of sticky and this gets kind of difficult here. Some of your translations have a different reading because there's a translation issue here that I need to sort of flesh out for you. 
Let me read to you how some different translations translate this, that, that statement that Agrippa makes. The NASB, which I just read to you, the New American Standard Version, translates it like this. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. As if Paul, given a little bit more time, if we let you go on with your defense and you continue talking, you're likely going to persuade me to become a Christian. That's the idea behind that translation. The King James translates it this way. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. In other words, up to this time, Paul, I am this close. At this moment, I am this close to becoming a Christian. You've almost got me persuaded. Now, the NIV is completely different. Listen to the NIV. It's a question. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Now, we've got three wildly different translations of the same phrase, don't we? Why the difference? It's because in Greek, like in English, you can have words or phrases that have multiple meanings depending on context and intention. And so depending on how you read, in in this passage, in this verse, there are actually three words or phrases that can be taken in two different ways that totally change the meaning depending on how you take it. And I have always, up up until this week, I've always taken it to mean Paul, you've almost got me persuaded. You've been so persuasive that I'm almost there. A little push and I'll, I'd become a Christian. You've almost got me convinced. I've always taken, and I even indicated that last week, and I have in previous weeks, that Paul was so persuasive that that's what Agrippa said. Friends, I don't, that's not what Agrippa said. You know what Agrippa said? Now listen carefully because you're not going to hear me say this often. But the NIV actually has the better translation there. Now for those of you who read in the NIV, I'm sorry, I'm just playing with you. The NIV has the better translation there. It is a question. Do you think in such a short period of time you can convince me to become a Christian? It's an evasive question. He's not near conversion. He's evading the question. Paul has put him in a dilemma. He's put him in a pickle. I can't answer yes. I don't want to answer no. What am I going to answer? He evades the question by saying, do you think that with such a short argument, in such a short period of time, that you can actually make me to play the part of a Christian? That you can actually make me a Christian. You think I'm going to become a Christian? You come in here with one little presentation, do your little presentation, and you expect me to become a Christian based upon that? Because Agrippa could see that Paul was pushing him toward this conclusion to get Agrippa to make a decision. And so Agrippa evades the whole situation by saying, you think that in such a short period of time you can commit me or make me to be a Christian, Paul? He's evading the subject. He doesn't want to answer and so he doesn't answer. And he kind of, basically, friends, he's, he's brushing Paul off. You're not going to do it in such a short period of time, Paul. And then verse 30 says he stands up. That's it. He's not almost a Christian. He doesn't want to hear more about this. Paul's come in and he's given his presentation. Paul sort of pushed him into a corner, made him make a decision between one option or the other option. He doesn't want to choose either option, so he basically blows it off. Well, you think you can make me a Christian in such a short period of time? Come on. Look what Paul says, verse 29. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in short or in long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And I don't know about you, but I can almost see the Apostle Paul raising up the chains and hearing it jingle in that large auditorium when he says that. Whether it's a short period of time, Agrippa, whether it's with a short argument or a long argument, a long presentation or a long period of time, my heart's prayer, my desire to God is that not only you, but Festus and Bernice and everybody else in this auditorium would all become just like I am, with the exception of the chains. Agrippa, I wish that you had the blessings that I have without the suffering, without the chains, and without the hostility. These people don't wish any well upon Paul whatsoever, but here he wishes the ultimate well upon those who have him in chains. 
And he's even brought, Festus has even brought him up for ridicule in front of all of these people. And Paul says, I wish you could have the blessings that I have. Now look at the irony of this whole presentation in Acts 26. You've got all of the pomp and all of the glory of Rome. And then you have Paul, who is as out of place as out of place can be in the presence of all of this pomp and all of this glory and all of these prominent men who are standing around and sitting around him. And what does Paul say? I wish you could have what I have. I bet there's not a single unsaved individual in that room who says, yeah, I'd love to trade everything I've got to be just like you, Paul. Because in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of men, there is absolutely nothing enviable about that man. Nothing. 60-year-old, well-aged, Jewish rabbi. Probably no hair. You could probably see the, the scars on his head from the stoning. He bears on his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He has suffered the loss of everything. He has no friends, and none of his former friends have stayed with him. He has no family members. He has been forsaken, and, and he's in trial. And yet he says to all of these people, I wish you could have the blessings that I have. What did Paul have? He had everything. An inheritance undefiled, unfading, unperishable. What did they have? Well, they had earth. They had Rome. They had their popularity. They had prominence. They had their glory. They had their respect. They're the prominent men of the city. But Paul understands, and you and I understand, that even though Paul had nothing, he had everything because he had Christ. And even though they had everything in the eyes of the world, they had nothing because they didn't have Christ. And Paul says, I wish that your eyes would be opened so that you could see what I see, so that you would turn, and so that you could have what I have. I wish that you could have all of the blessings that I enjoy, just without the chains. I wish you the best. That was the end of it. Verse 30 says, the king stood up. That's the way of adjourning the meeting. It's over. Trial's done. Court proceedings are over. The king stands up, and it's that's it. Nothing else to be said. Nothing else was said. And they're going to consult, and we're going to look at that next week. I want to point out just two things that I think are instructive and two things that I think are very important for us to remember and to understand. First of all, it's this. Do you notice how Paul sought to persuade Agrippa? Notice that? He was persuading Agrippa. That's what a good ambassador for Christ does. That's what evangelism is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. Paul is seeking to move Agrippa from a place of unbelief to a place of belief. He is seeking to move Agrippa from his eyes being opened or closed to his eyes being opened so that he might embrace the gospel and trust Christ. And he is actually, through his presentation, through everything he's done, sort of forced Agrippa into this corner and forced him to make a decision. He's asking him for a commitment. He's asking him for a decision. He's putting the heat on him. Friends, that's completely appropriate in evangelism. Now, I'm not talking about manipulating somebody or or coercing somebody into making a decision. We don't convert anybody. That's a sovereign, gracious work of God. But we can and we should be as persuasive and powerful as we possibly can be and to bring people, seek to bring people to a point of making a decision so that they can see like Agrippa saw, I either have to deny truth or I have to turn to Christ and believe on Him for salvation. And that's where we seek to bring people. Notice how persuasive he was. Second, and this I think is the most encouraging element of it. Do you notice, I want you to notice, that even the best preacher delivering the best message to the most likely convert is no guarantee of success. 
Friends, who better to give the gospel than the Apostle Paul? Does it get any better than that? No, I don't think it gets any better than that. Uh, who better to, to explain the Old Testament scriptures to a man steeped in the Old Testament than Saul of Tarsus? Who, who more powerful? Who more persuasive? Who more articulate? Who more intellectual? Who more theological than Paul could you possibly ask for? You couldn't. And then look at the presentation. Who better to talk about the risen Christ than the man who'd seen him on the road to Damascus? And well, what better of a presentation of the blessings of the gospel can you get than that which in verse 18 that we looked at for the last two weeks? What better presentation of the gospel can you get than that? It doesn't get any clearer than that. It doesn't get any more powerful than that. And then Agrippa, of all the people in the Roman Empire that Paul could talk to, here was a man who was steeped in all things Jewish. He understood all of the concepts that Paul is explaining. Paul doesn't have to define his terms. Paul doesn't have to quote the prophets. Agrippa knows all of this. The perfect candidate, a powerful message, and a persuasive preacher. And yet, were there any conversions? Not one. Festus says, you're crazy. Agrippa says, you think you can convince me to become a Christian with such a short presentation? And he stands up, and it's over with. No conversions. Listen, friends. Salvation does not rest upon the power of the presenter or the polish of the presentation, or in the potential candidate for conversion. Salvation is of the Lord. And that is the Lord's work. So when they mock you and they call you crazy, or when they brush you off and they blow you off and want nothing more to do with you, don't be discouraged, friends. It happened to Paul. That's what happened in Acts 26. He was blown off. said, you're crazy. And then that was it. It's not our job to be It's our job to be faithful, and it is God who makes us fruitful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this reminder of just how powerful is your word and just how sovereign is your salvation and your grace. Thank you, Father, for reminding us again that our responsibility before you is not to produce the fruit. Our responsibility is to be faithful and allow you to produce the fruit through our efforts. Make us, O God, and give us the grace to be persuasive and powerful and persistent presenters of the truth. But guard us by your grace, we ask, from being discouraged by results of which we should not even be concerned about. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. And we thank you that you made the gospel to us the power of God unto salvation, and that by your doing, we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.